0: We continue our study of 2 Corinthians, and we do so this morning by going to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 4, page 1795 in your pew Bibles. We're going to be dealing with 2 Corinthians for quite some time in, in this series, and I know some of you are going to be in and out in the summer for vacation and various other things. Uh, but take, I, we hope that you're taking the time to sit with this letter of Paul, the second letter of Paul, and just read it from time to time, from cover to cover. Just read the whole letter so that you have a good feel for what's happening there. Read your devotions at your dinner table, uh, wherever it is, so that you're familiar with this whole letter, the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing as we open the word. Indeed, Lord, we pray that you would teach us your way as we open the scriptures once again. In particular, this morning we ask, O Lord, that you would help us to see light in the darkness, Thank you for the Apostle Paul, whom you call to a very specific task and purpose. And thank you, Lord, for the writings that he left behind and for the things that we can learn from them. And we pray, O Lord, that we may see Jesus, that we may be reminded of the gospel, and that we might be encouraged by the fact that you never change. To you be the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Now, this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have not done so according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I planned to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, did I do it lightly? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not, <clears throat> was not yes and no, but in him has, it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness that, I, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who's left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. The word of the Lord. It would be helpful for you to keep your Bibles open uh, to that particular portion of Scripture as I'm going to be referring to it and we're going to work through it in in one way or another. Brothers and sisters in Christ, on Wednesday evening of this past week, as many of you know, a 21-year-old white man joined a Bible study group at the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. And after an hour of being present and being welcomed by those who were there, he opened fire, killing nine people in the room. Charleston Mayor Joseph P. Riley Jr. called the shooting, quote, an unfathomable and unspeakable act by someone filled with hate and with a deranged mind. Of all cities in Charleston, he said, to have a horrible, hateful person go into the church and kill people there to pray and worship with each other is something that's beyond any comprehension and is not explained. And then he said, we're going to put our arms around that church and that church family. And that's what the Synod of the Christian Reformed Church meeting in Sioux Center, Iowa, at Dort College this past week did as they passed on Thursday morning, as they paused on Thursday morning to think about what had happened in Charleston and to pray. And if any of you watched it online, the agonizing prayer, asked the Lord for mercy and asked the lord to allow his light to shine in the darkness in spite of the shootings and the killings and the blackness of the moment and then synod put their arms around those in charleston they read a resolution into the record declaring their abhorrence of the tragic killings in the emmanuel ame church in south carolina declaring its solidarity with the families the church and the others affected by this event And it's hope that even in tragedy, the power of the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ might be known. Indeed, what happened in South Carolina is beyond words. When I think of what happened in Ottawa and the young man who went into Parliament, it was like an arrow being shot right into the heart of Canadian democracy. And maybe because this is so close, it happens overseas all the time, this is not new, but maybe because it was so close and because it was this week with all the things happening in this world, this young man going into a church and sitting with those people for an hour and then shooting them is almost like a dagger, like an arrow in the heart of the Christian church in North America. What happened in South Carolina is beyond words. And then when synod was almost being adjourned, the fraternal delegate from the Reformed Church in America asked synod and asked our denomination for prayers because of the news that 250,000 residents of the Dominican Republic of Haitian descent were about to be deported from that country. And surely that spells disaster for them And surely that will greatly challenge Haiti, a country that already has its challenges. Two events that caught my eye this week, and then I haven't even said anything about the 60 million refugees, yesterday was Refugee Day, who have been forced to leave their homes and their cities and their countries because of conflict. I've said nothing about Syria or ISIS or Boko Haram or the slums of Brazil or the slums that we find in every other country in the world. I haven't said anything yet about the corruption at FIFA or the corruption at various levels of our own government or the injustice toward the unborn or, well, that list can go on and on. When will it all end? When will the killing and the hatred and the injustice and the pain and the agony in this world end? Surely, we join the church of all times and of all places, praying for mercy, for shalom, praying, Lord, come quickly. Meanwhile, many of us struggle with our sorrow over the loss of loved ones, our sorrow over the reality of disabilities, loneliness, illness, mental health illness, financial struggles, broken relationships, our struggle with same-sex attraction, children who have left the faith, aging parents, unemployment, betrayal, and the list goes on. There are so many things that fill us with pain and sadness, and so many things that tend to make life dark. <clears throat> Sometimes we have to confess it overwhelms us to the point where we seem to have very little joy in life anymore. Of course, we need to be really careful about that because it's important that we also rejoice in all the good things that this world has to offer. Love and relationships, weddings such as experienced by the couples listed in the bulletin once again today, the privilege of carrying the Pan Am games torch as Sean Wassink did this past Friday, health, birth, grandchildren, I know what that's about now, anniversaries, birthdays, graduations, opportunities to enjoy the creation and the beautiful world all around us, music, art, color, and so on. We have to be so careful that we're not always overwhelmed by all the negatives that seem to be so prevalent in our lives. And I apologize that if this pulpit, or by way of the bulletin, uh, we the heartaches and all the horrible things seem to get most of the attention, that seems to be what we're so often involved with. But we need to have a really good balance in life, a balance that is sometimes really hard To come by. You know, it's always interested me to know that when we are challenged, or when we are in danger, or when we are living on the edge, never really knowing what's to come next, it's at those particular times that we are keenly aware of life. It's at those times that we are most perhaps alive. We are more tuned into what's real or what's important or whatever. Many of the people that I've had the privilege of dealing with over the years who understood that life was precious and that they only had so much time left to live tended to be people who were incredibly aware of the beauty of the flowers, the wonder of creation the love of a spouse or their children. They tended to be aware, keenly aware, of the truth of the gospel, the importance of the church, the importance of the fellowship of believers, and so forth. Those for whom life is a challenge and who live on the edge seem to have a fresher take on what is just, seem to have an uncanny ability to make sure that they're right, not only with the Lord, but also with others around them. Many people who find themselves struggling in life are also people who seem to have a clear sense of priorities, a sense of what's important and what's incredibly unimportant, a sense of what they ought to tackle and what they ought to walk away from. They don't take anything for granted. And therefore, they seem to be fully alive, perhaps because they are close and seem to understand what it means to have that life taken away from them. There's a keen sense of life amongst those who live on the edge. And if you ever read any books by those who were taken captive or so who were hostage, they felt incredibly alive in those situations even though they were so broken and they were as good as dead. Now one of these people, certainly as we come to meet him in 2 Corinthians, was the Apostle Paul. As Pastor John introduced us to the letter last week, we note that this was uh, we noted that this is one of the rawest, most alive, if you will, most tender, honest, and personal of all the letters that Paul wrote. The apostle didn't hold back. He wrote what was on his heart, and he made it very clear to the Corinthians just where he stood in relationship to that church, in relationship to his Lord, and in relationship to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, this is a hand, a letter, a handwritten personal letter from the apostle to a church that had in some way or another hurt him badly. The source of that hurt, the nature of that hurt is fed to us in bits and pieces as we work our way through the letter. We know that while Paul was in Ephesus, while on his third missionary journey, he made a side trip to Corinth, his first time back after having planted the church there. And that short side trip to Corinth, for some reason, didn't go well for him. In fact, he referred to it in chapter 2, verse 1, as the painful visit, a visit he wasn't particularly looking forward to reliving. Just what happened to make it a painful visit, we're not told. We are told, however, that the apostle had a great love for the Corinthians. Look at the, what he writes in chapter four, 2, verse 4. And it was this great love for, Cor- for Corinth that caused him to write this letter. It was also his great love for the church in spite of the pain that they caused him that he had planned to visit them on his way to Macedonia and then on his way back from Macedonia. And Macedonia is a ter- territory north of where Corinth was located. And he wanted to visit them so that they might benefit twice, verse 15. That is, that they might enjoy his company and he theirs that they might rejoice in each other's presence, that they might be spiritually encouraged by him being there in person. And Paul was quite confident, a word that he used in verse 15, that he could visit the Corinthians because from his particular point of view, he had nothing to hide. And notice he writes about that in verses 12 through 14. There he defends himself and those with him, telling the Corinthians and that their consciences were clear that they, as apostles, had conducted themselves in the holiness and sincerity that are from God, and they conducted themselves among the Corinthians and, and elsewhere, not as the world would conduct themselves, but they conducted themselves by God's grace and in His way. In other words, the apostle makes it clear to the Corinthians that he's completely above board. He's not hiding anything and speaking the truth in love as he writes, writes this letter, reminding the Corinthians of their, that their, of their relationship that was and that he hoped would be again. But yeah, then when push came to shove, When he had to make travel plans, the apostle decided to bypass Corinth and not visit at all, even though he really wanted to visit them. And he decided to bypass Corinth, as verse 23 says, in order to spare you, as he put it. He decided not to go to Corinth, after all, for their own good, in order to allow them for a time, perhaps, to repent or to see what the issues were. And I suppose that Paul felt that if he were to be physically present in Corinth, things would only get worse between them. Maybe because then he would become too much of a disciplinarian, and maybe in his lashing out at them, they would lash back in a way that wouldn't be terribly edifying for anyone. Therefore, he doesn't go. And his prayer is that the Corinthians would understand and fully see the picture someday and and note that he was truthful and sincere. Sometimes, sometimes the better part of wisdom is indeed to stay away, at least for some time, from those with whom one has an issue. But the change of plans caused him more difficulty than he perhaps counted on because it only seemed, at least in the mind of some of the members of the Corinthian church, to make Paul out as someone who was not trustworthy. That is to say, Paul's change in plans seemed to confirm what some were saying about him, namely that he was a flake. Not someone to trust. Not someone who was true to his word. Not someone who conducted himself in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. And consequently, I suppose, and that's probably the real sore point for Paul, if you couldn't trust Paul, if Paul's a flake, then perhaps the message he preached wasn't trustworthy either. It sure hurts when someone's actions or decisions are misinterpreted. We need to be careful about judging others' decisions. And it's remarkable to me when you read this letter how much kickback, how much mistrust, how much outright persecution Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, someone who loved Jesus, it's amazing how much kickback he experienced at the hands of the Corinthian church. How can believers... Christ-confessing people come to such conclusions and make life so difficult for others. Sin is even in the church, and I think that this particular question has plagued the church for as long as there's been a church, and it plagues the church even today. Just a few days ago at the meeting of Synod, Reverend Bob Demour, editor of the Banner, over the past 11 years, said his farewell. And one of the things that he referred to in his closing remarks was not only the wonderful notes of encouragement he received over the years of his involvement as banner editor, but he also mentioned that he received letters and emails which he could not read on the floor of Synod, and he could not publish because of their abusive content and language. And he's not the first banner editor who has made that kind of a remark. Banner editors that I've known, at least the ones that I've known, down through the years, have made those remarks as well. And they're not from people outside the church. Those are not from non-believers, but those are from members of the Christian Reformed Church that they send that kind of information to the banner editor so that he cannot read it publicly. It's that abusive. How can that be? I cannot fathom that there are people in the church of Jesus Christ who carry such hatred, such spite, such venom, such mistrust against a fellow church member. And I never know quite what to do with such approaches on on the part of fellow members of the body other than pray that the Holy Spirit catches them, that they repent and that they understand that such an approach is totally inappropriate and has no place in the body of Jesus Christ, no matter how much you may disagree with somebody else. Something obviously happened to Paul in Corinth, something that was enough to cause him to decide not to go there, but instead bypass it. What a flake. He's not coming. And then he addressed his decision in the passage we read, verses 17 and following. When I planned this to come to Corinth, did I do this lightly? Do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no? In other words, are you going to accuse me of not being able to make up my mind and of vacillating between two opinions? And then he goes on to explain that as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. In other words, my dear Corinthian brothers and sisters whom I love so much, the gospel we preach to you is not a gospel that's wishy-washy because the very God we serve is not one that lives at a whim. The gospel of Jesus Christ whom we have proclaimed to you and who we proclaim to you today is reliable and firm and all of God's promises are yes in Christ and then the word yes is amen or so shall it be. And while it may have seemed to some of the Corinthians who had jumped to false conclusions about Paul that because first he said he was coming to visit and then he changed his mind and and thereby the very message Paul was preaching was unreliable, Paul would have them know that's not the case at all. God does not waffle in His promises. On the contrary, verse 21 and 22, He makes us stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set His seal of ownership upon us, put His Spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what's to come. Those verses are, are a sermon in and of itself, so we'll leave that for now. Certainly when you read this particular portion of Scripture, you get an image here of an apostle who, while facing all sorts of criticism and challenges, nonetheless is alive, keenly alive, sure, honest, keenly aware of the veracity and the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. This is a man who's on the edge here, And he declares that while people may be folks who change their minds from time to time and perhaps may even be considered as ones who let others down, God never changes. All God's promises are for sure. And because all of God's promises are for sure and because God is faithful, Paul tries to make the Corinthians understand That his approach to preaching and even to travel plans are in line with the faithfulness of God. There is no yes and no about God. So there is no yes and no in his approach to the Corinthian church. His conscience is clear in terms of what he has done as a preacher of the word in Corinth and elsewhere. As to the faith or the approach of Christian living on the part of the folks in Corinth, Paul writes in verse 24, well, it's really up to them. It's really up to you as to how you're going to live out your faith. Mind you, if there is no yes and no in God, but only an amen in him, then they, then we as believers also ought to live that way. But Paul makes it clear that how the Corinthians act, that's really their responsibility. He's not a babysitter. And he's not going to babysit this new church, nor is he going to lord it over them in any way. He considers himself a partner in the faith, working alongside the Corinthians for their joy. And that's why he decided not to visit them at this time. The working alongside the Corinthians with their joy, for their joy would not be the case if he were to come. It wouldn't be joyful for them. Rather, it would be painful because of mistrust and because of some of the things that obviously had happened or been said. And so if I'm in grief, who's going to make me happy once again? Who's going to help me? Who's going to comfort me if you're the very ones who are grieving me? Paul writes that he loves the Corinthians as persons. He loves the church, but his presence, his physical presence in their midst would only be painful and difficult at this time. The problem with preaching on a whole letter like this is that when you deal with particular verses and no more, you're kind of left hanging. And other pieces are going to be picked up with later parts of, of this letter. But certainly, as we go to these verses and as we open this lo- this letter, we know that the apostle speaks with great honesty, great honesty, and great affection for the folks in Corinth. But he doesn't see his way clear to go there, so he bypasses the city. And yet, amidst the brokenness of the relationship, amidst the disheartenment of the time, he makes it clear that there is light in the darkness. There is light in the darkness because the gospel has not changed. God is still God in spite of what happens. God is still on the throne. His promises never fail. And God is much greater than any of the misery that we will face here on this earth. There is light out of darkness. Jesus will come again, and he will make all things new. Come, Lord Jesus. God is still God. He's still on the throne. His promises never fail. Sometimes we just need to be reminded of that. Amen.